Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Hello. And how do you do? Uh, this is Gigabit Nation. It's our first uh, session for the month, I believe. Yes. And so... Today, we're going to focus on uh, partnerships between um, communities that are building broadband and telehealth applications and the, their various suppliers. Um, starting off today's uh, program is J.J. McGrath, who is the CEO of TechWave, a wireless ISP, and um, I, I have actually written about his company. This will be the first time I've actually interviewed him. So, JJ, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Greg. Appreciate it. So, um, I'm going to just jump right in, but I think I should ask, um, you know, for the, for the uh, listeners, what is a WISP, if they're not from this industry, and why, you know, why are the WISPs so important to broadband adoption? Well, WISP stands for Wireless Internet Service Provider. So it's just a way to kind of designate how the type of technology we use to deliver internet signals. So what it means by we use fixed wireless. So basically what that means is that we have gear transmitters that we put on top of buildings, on top of towers, like cell towers, little ham radio towers, uh, water towers, grain silos to transmit a signal out, typically in public spectrum, so something like 5 gigahertz. And we mount little wireless receivers on the buildings uh, and bring that signal inside the, that location and, you know, have a little baby router that then broadcasts the wireless signal. So it's kind of like a way of delivering Internet service, but we just do it through fixed wireless versus, you know, fiber, cable, DSL-style connection. And the gotcha. second part of the question was, Yep. Yeah. And what was the second question? Uh, just, um, you know, why, why or how are these uh, companies valuable in the broadband deployment uh, industry? Sure. I mean, it, because it, a lot of times is that it goes into, you know, we've got to solve the unserved, underserved markets. And a lot of that's going to be in the rural market. So, you know, a lot of the wireline providers, fiber, fiber, cable, DSL, those type of companies, look at a lot of variables on whether they determine if they're going to deploy uh, their services, technologies out in a certain given market. And mm-hmm. a lot of times the, the less population that's out there, the less likely chances of them putting their technologies out there unless it's subsidized somehow by the government. So it relies on other operators like myself where – we all started, the vast majority of us started, um, you know, saying, I can't get internet where I am, so what does it take to get me internet? Well, then, next, you know, your neighbor wants it, then that neighbor wants it, then the whole community, and then suddenly you're building a distribution network and providing internet service to hundreds, if not thousands of connections. Okay. So it's very right. viable to get the internet where it needs to be, where no other provider is willing to bring internet and where everyone has to be connected nowadays for school, for work, you know, find a job, do their homework, you know, entertainment values. You know, to me, the internet is basically the, in the top three of, of things that you have to have. You have to have power, you have to have water, and now it's the internet. So, um, you know, gotcha. it's a vital technology. Yep, yep. Okay, cool. Um, so for the, uh, for the folks that are coming in from the telehealth world, um, as I've said a bazillion times, um, you have to have broadband in order to have good telehealth. And so those with 
are a lifeline for the yeah to the market and so they're very valuable and you're going to need them directly or indirectly uh, for your various um, telehealth projects so you know the big the the, um, the big thing today is you know the the, the partnership the customer relationship between the various suppliers, such as um, the, wire, the wireless ISPs um, and the community. So now, um, from your perspective, JJ, how do you make uh, or have a customer relationship last for years? Well, I think it's like any in any kind of business, it's all about the customer listening to the customer, understanding what the customer needs, not trying to take what you have and, you know, basically ram it down their throat as their solution. You need to understand what it, and then it's, you know, transparency. It's, it's being, uh, Hey, here's the problem. Here's what really is the problem. And try not to, you know, necessarily throw it underneath the rug. You need to say why and be transparent on what the problem is. Transparent, um, you know, it, it reach out, communicate, if not over communicate to your customers, keep them updated even if it's news about what's kind of going on, new new services, new pricing, um, yeah, it's just that to me is just customer management, customer service, one on one style stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. just and it, with as small companies, we can definitely excel in that because you we see these people in the grocery stores, at the gas stations, at the little league fields. I mean, my tech for are constantly going to these little games and like the customers will come up and say, hey. Uh, JJ, here's what's kind of going on here with my connection. Well, did you call in the ticket? No. Okay, let me look at it. So that's, you know, customers like that. They know that they can see you out on the street versus if you're a big company, they may not do that. You're just a number to them, and the, the local people may not know the, the the local tech guys, if there's even local tech guys. I know, like, one of our big company wireline providers here in Sherman uh, they send their tech guys up from the Dallas area. They come in, do their jobs, and they take up back off. So you never see those guys in the, in the community. It's vital to be a member of the local community itself. Interesting. So then you consider this both a competitive advantage, but also a customer service advantage. Absolutely. The, the good chunk of uh, our interactions with our customers prefer working with us because we are the local, the local guys. They can come into our office. We still have a front office, though we only have one or two visits, maybe a day, if not a week. But they know we're the local guys. There are some people that will fly out, switch to a local guy, as long as they got great service and providing great service, at, you know, both as a customer service as well as the actual Internet service itself, over the big guys because they don't want to be just a number one. I had a problem at my house. I can't even get my own Internet at my house. I called into the service center in Phoenix, Arizona, and just sat on hold for a while and oh, before boy. they finally got it resolved. And, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I was down three or four hours. I didn't know what was going on. So versus the moment we go down, we have, you know, tons of calls coming in, but we're turning around. We're calling every single one. We're keeping them updated. So, yeah, I mean, they're going, people want to work with the local guys. There's, at least in my area, um, there's great, they want to work with the local guys because they want to give local money and keep the business uh, local. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. No. Yeah. Um, are there things that you do? This is Pottsville Library. Our hours are Sunday, Sunday 1 to 5, Monday 10 to 5, Tuesday, Wednesday, Hold and on, Thursday 1 to 5. We're closed Friday and Saturday. Huh, that's a little weird. All right, um, sorry, I was going to ask you, um, what do you do in the beginning? Are there are there certain things that you do that ensures, you know, the, the, the relationship will really get off to a good start? Um, you know, what do I do to make sure? I mean, I don't, other than answering the phones, that's the biggest one of the biggest things that we get complimented on is that we actually answer our phone calls. We respond to text messages. We respond to Facebook posts. We respond to Google posts. And people, 
enjoys as part of that relationship that we are responsive, that we answer the phones, we get back to people in timely manners. I'm not saying we're perfect. We all have our issues no matter what. Uh, that, you know, if we sometimes slip, it falls through the cracks. But I'm going to say about 98%, 99% of the time, we're, we're very responsive. I'm staffing up and adding more people to so make sure we maintain uh, as close to 100% at all times talking to people. Um, so that's one of the things that, you know, is one of the secrets is just be responsive to your customers. Hear what your customers ask, then be responsive to them. Mm-hmm. And it's, so now, if you do that, people will come to you because most of my marketing, Craig, is just word of mouth. I don't do marketing. I just I, – my whole business comes in off of word of mouth and this neighbor talking to this neighbor, hey, who do you use, uh, like apps or, you know, Facebook groups like, you know, next door. Um, people's like, hey, who's an internet provider? Generally, my name always shows up in those groups and discussions. And there are people that will come, you know, we get requests 30 miles away. Hey, can you provide me service? I'd love to, but we don't service that area right now. So, mm-hmm. so now what, um, I mean, a partnership is basically a two-way uh, re- relationship. What can communities do to um, to ensure that uh, they, they can work well with, um, you know, your organization or organizations like yours for the long term? So repeat the question again. Maybe I didn't understand it. Are there things that the customer, you know, whether it's the oh, okay. library or the city government, uh, how do you mm-hmm. get, how do they do better at, you know, making the relationship work? Like I said, it's got to be a two-way, you know, relationship yeah, thing. Okay, I see what. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's people's commitment to customer service, and if you don't have that commitment, even knowing what it is, I mean, you got to think of it more of like the Chick-fil-A style of experience. You know, we obviously, I'm sure most of us have gone into Chick-fil-A and how fast they can move that drive-through lane, go in there, how fast they can turn their order in. It's because they understand customer service and they throw the resources at that customer service department to make sure that the customers are happy at all times. And if there's a mistake, they make sure they make up for it. And that way they can keep those customers coming back. And that's where a lot of companies fail because they don't understand the commitment it truly takes to have a great customer service department. You've got to have the resources, which means typically you've got to have the people and have the people that are trained right who know about customers and how to take care of a customer's experience. And um, you can't shortchange that. You can't, you know, try to do it with less people. You can try, but oh, inevitably your customer service will hurt. And that's why I'm staffing up in my customer service department to make sure that we've been looking a lot lately that we're like, hey, this is, we got to change the game. We got to, because as we ramp up our technologies and we're trying to go after more money, more grant, government grant money and adding more customers, we have to amp up, uh, ramp up our customer service department and I'm making sure I hire the right people now with the right mentality versus before I had it in the back of my mind and people would do it and we'd be okay. Don't get me wrong. We're never, we're always transparent, but I felt that we could do better. So it's always mm-hmm. knowing that we're not doing, in my opinion, we're not doing a great job though. Overall, everyone still loves us and throwing, you know, giving us more business. I felt we needed to do better. And I had to have that mindset. Some people's companies just don't have that. Diane, who's on the call, just is great. She understands. She's completely turned around the possible library because it's all about the customer service and what does the customer want and maybe even anticipate what the customer needs and they may or may not know it. And that's where Diane has done a stellar, fantastic job on trying to understand and be very – don't be that old, staunchy, you know, person and say, well, this is the way we've been doing business for 20, 30 years, and we're going to keep doing the business. I mean, the industry is changing. The environment's changing. Economic, everything is changing. You've got to keep up with the times and adjust your model, no matter what mm-hmm. industry you're in. So now for the um, – well, say maybe, maybe we're talking about a city. Right? If a city wants to do uh, wireless all over town, um, is there a lot of business planning that goes on their side um, to to then be able to tell you 
you know, more specifically what they want their uh, technology to do for them? Well, yeah, I mean, that to me is, it really depends on what the, that, <laughs> it gets almost into a double-edged sword. On If the city's wanting to provide, you know, public Wi-Fi, are they wanting to give it away? Or do they want to turn it into a municipality-owned uh, environment where they're not only wanting to maybe give it away in the public sectors, but maybe turn around and sell it? Or even mm-hmm. you know, wholesale it out for another provider to me to, to utilize that. So there's some cities that do a great, fantastic job. Um, versus other cities that are horrible, and they inevitably give up after a year or two because they don't understand what it takes to do um, to run an internet company. Um, you know, as I tell everyone, when it comes to internet, uh, people get very, very weird when it gets to internet, and it's one of those things where it's hard to win them over. But when they win you over, then it's the top demand because you know inevitably uh, will go down. Everyone goes down. And you'll have some guy call up his forty dollars a month account. He's paying. He's like, "Well, I'm losing millions of dollars, you know, by having being down." I'm like, dude, you're only down for a minute or two. You know, it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. We have an interruption in service. So some companies understand how to deal with those situations. I mean, you got to be able to take those calls at midnight, one, two o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day, and go out and take care of those towers, those access points, those transmitters. Of put, we now, you know, generators need to be put on. I mean, when we Texas had that little snow issue, ice issue <laughs> earlier. Yeah, yes. What about uh, that? Yeah. You know, I was running around with my one of my tower guys for five days running generators and gas all around. And if you don't have that level of commitment, sometimes these cities who think they can do this Internet, that's where they end up giving up because they don't understand what it truly takes to run those kinds of environments. So, you know, do they – you know, we're work, trying to work right now with one of our cities right now to build out a public Wi-Fi and let us handle it and let us build it out and, you know, help design it and get it implemented. That's the proposal that we're currently working on right now. So it really depends on your environment. In my environment up here in Brixton County, our cities get it. A lot of them don't want anything to do. They don't want to own the infrastructure. They just want to make sure it's given out for free, at least for public access, you know, basically due to covid issues that brought to life uh, yes. we have okay. problems with connectivity issues so it really depends on the cities you know right uh, or the counties or the townships or whatever part of the country you are what they're called it it really depends on there's some like i said are very progressive and some are that don't want anything to do with it they don't care what goes on and that they don't want to put any money towards broadband there's like oh that's a state issue or that's a federal issue we want to take our money that we have and put it into our you know, our emergency services, our, you know, our parks, our whatever the case might be. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. Is there much difference between, you know, from a, you know, as an ISP, um, aside from the number of actual customers, is there much difference between a, uh, a, a network for 1,000 customers versus a network for 10,000 customers the network in and of itself not really because at some point it just turns into a rinse and repeat style of a system you know whether you bring in a new tower in the area or you bring on a new node for wire cable fiber it's not that big of a deal but there is a scaling issue as you add more and more people you do have to think about your infrastructure do you have enough backhaul the backhaul is the connections between the nodes or from the data center out to that 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 neighborhood or even to that tower is there enough capacity and as you bring on those more people are there four or five backhaul connections from that tower or that that fiber node all the way back to the data center so it adds up and it adds you know it's it's like a water effect you start in a little little stream go to a creek and you know you're into a lake and then goes into the ocean and then it's it, but it keeps the volume as you travel downstream or upstream it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and that's what it kind of works for with the internet. You just got to understand that a thousand to ten thousand is not that big but jump, but once you start going beyond you know twenty thirty thousand connections, it starts adding up astronomically, and you have to make sure you have provide adequate you know backhaul um, mm-hmm. you know in our case, what we're trying to do is more fiber drains in our network so far because we're having capacity constraints on our wireless you know our licensed microwave links. Uh, I don't want to get into too much technical details, but 
It's right. a design consideration. You know, you're constantly evaluating. So if you're watching your internet usage across the network and you start seeing, oh, I'm at 60, 65% of capacity of this radio. So let's just say I have my radio transmitters are, are at one gig capacity and I'm running five, 600 megs. I better look to see what I can do to start increasing that capacity. So, it, yeah, and 1,000 subscribers is not a big deal, but 10,000, okay, it's like, okay, now we're going to have to start watching this a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. But it also depends on where you're 1,000 concentrated or 1,000 spread across the entire county. So there's a lot of design considerations there too. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's a constant evolving creature beast that constantly wants to be fed. It's a 24-7 mm-hmm. monster is what I keep saying. And the more resources that you can give it, the more resources it's going to consume. It really doesn't matter the type of technology. It'll consume it all because there's always going to be constant upgrades. Something's always going to be breaking. You're going to add on a new neighborhood, a new street, a new tower, a new subdivision, whatever the case may be. Where Right now, Sherman has a field, empty field, that they now going to turn into 2,000 homes. Like, mm-hmm. wow, there's like nothing out here, so we better start building <laughs> infrastructure out here. You know, it's a good problem to have, you know, especially if you're in a hustling, bustling community like we are, that's kind of growing mm-hmm. because people don't want to live in Dallas, so they come up to where we are. We're about 16 minutes away from Dallas. So it's no big deal uh-huh. in Texas to drive an hour, um, and, and that's what they want to do because we have a massive lake just north of us, about 10, 15 minutes away. And so people love the environment. They want to be far enough away from the hustle and bustle of big town, but they also want some nice And a lot of things they want to make sure they have is access to good quality internet. Right. Right. That makes sense. Now, do, yep. you know, as a, as an ISP, do you have any uh, relationship or contact with the different organizations within the, um, town or you know that you that you're serving meaning um you know are, are you uh, like aware of the different needs of the different groups or businesses or whatever in the com- community well i mean is as good is it good let's see how i say it this way as, as, as any good businesses, you are aware of the, the community, you're aware of the service, you're aware of what you've got to provide. Now, when it comes to Internet, it's pretty much you've got to provide an Internet connection. That's what people want. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, some people think they need that gig connection, when in reality they don't. Um, you know, I think 25, 3 speed, 25 meg down, 3 meg up is way more than adequate. I can show you time and time again where these people that will pay me for 100 meg connections, I have several of those, um, and they barely use 20, 30 meg at any given time because we monitor every single connection, not the content. We just at least monitor the usage. Mm-hmm. And, but making sure that, that usage is there and making sure that the capacity is there, we have adequate backhaul, we have a great quality service that we don't overload, oversubscribe our network. And we the, – uh, you know, and we provide a good quality internet service for any use in that area. Now, you're going to have those businesses that require special needs. So there is one plant up here that came in, industrial plant. There was only one provider that could provide them because they had to have a certain requirement where you had to be a, a direct connection to the internet um, and only um, what they call a tier one connection. And, you know, they had to have direct connections to uh, Google's cloud, Apple cloud, all that we don't have those kinds of connections um so it, that was one of you know probably one of the handful of very uh exceptions to um you know we couldn't provide no matter what we did because it's only yeah. what they call mm-hmm. the incumbent providers only the big ones like the frontiers the at&t's those guys have those type of connections and we get it we can't win everything but right no. we provide a, a, an, an internet signal that can fit at least 95% of the, any, anyone's needs. Now, right. how you go after those people and find those people, that's what gets kind of interesting. Residentials are way different how you sell to a residential versus how do you smell to a small business, to an industrial client, to a commercial client. So there's different techniques to do those kinds of, uh, of, of those types of sales. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, you know, we are trying to go out into communities. We try to go to the 
chamber groups, the business networking groups, the social activities in the evenings. And we try to always fill a pulse of, are we missing a service? Should we be doing this? Should we be doing that? You know, what are we missing? Make our service a lot better. And so, right. yeah, we do have those, those feelers out all the time, whether I'm out somewhere or my salespeople or my customer service people or my techs, you know, they go by and suddenly see a new subdivision that we're not aware of. Like, hey, JJ, here's a subdivision going over here. I'm like, okay, what's kind of going on? We'll go see it. And, you know, what, what, what is this a community, a residential community? Are we putting a mixed use? You know, what's, are this going to be a new industrial park? What's kind of going on here? You know? Mm-hmm. So, so um, it's uh, we got about five minutes. So let's ask one last question here. Um, I first heard of you when I met Diane, our next guest, and when um, she was talking to me about the telehealth project. And mm-hmm. you see telehealth becoming uh, more of an issue more, more people will be getting more of it um and does it change your job at all supporting a lot of telehealth users i definitely see telehealth becoming more and more prevalent and required um you know a lot of people's definitions on what a telehealth you know style connection is is still to be determined in my opinion but what I view as telehealth is more of a little old lady, old man sitting at their house, and they need to talk to their doctors. They need to talk to their hospitalists, they, primary care physicians. They need to have those kind of connections because there's, sometimes there's still some doctor's offices that are very restrictive on who they allow in, and sometimes those people cannot go out uh, into those doctor's offices. I got gotcha. you. And so – and so it's important to have some kind of connection. Now, you are a little bit more sensitive to those telehealth because that's a lot more video upstreaming that you have to be aware of because of the upload speeds uh, that you have to be aware of for those video connections. So a lot of people focus on download speed, so that's 25 meg, 50 meg, 100 meg down. That's what a lot of people kind of focus on. But when you come to video streaming style services, that's more upload because I'm servicing I'm serving up that content into wherever it's kind of going on to the other side. So you've got to be very mindful. A lot of people will offer like 25 meg down, one meg up. You know, the new standard of what the federal government's trying to do is 100 meg down and 20 meg up. And there's some mm-hmm. federal uh, politicians that are trying to do 100 meg, 100, you know, 100 meg down as well as 100 meg up. So they make sure there's plenty of bandwidth on both sides of that of that um, service to make sure that no matter what I'm trying to download or even what I'm trying to upload, i.e. video streaming, uh, that there's adequate bandwidth at all times for any service that you need. And provide what they call future proof as much as possible, as long as possible. Ah, yes. Okay. Huh. Well, it sounds like you're going to be busy because if you look at telehealth, (laughs) And there's a lot of need for the, uh, like you said, the upstream uh, video mm-hmm. contacts and so forth uh, to, to, you know, to have both your uh, video but also photos and lab results and all that kind of stuff. It could make a, a big impact on the network overall. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of changes coming down this. COVID has proven that it's very resilient right now and staying around. It's changing the Internet bandwidth. I think you're going to see how people use Internet can continue to evolve. Now, you are seeing a lot more um, involvement uh, at, at movement at the federal level to make sure there's money always for in, in expansion. And, you know, we're right now trying to pursue multiple government grants to enhance our back our capacity we're looking at going into fiber um, to into our communities, actually into maybe up to five counties worth uh, of deploying fiber, and it's a long game. Um, you know, the fixed wireless is great and fast. We can get up and running. Fiber is a long game. People think, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Can you fiber up this whole, you know, area? <laughs> no, that will just only place an order for some vaults or something like that. You're not 
people just don't understand what it takes. But, you know, we are aware of what's kind of going on in telehealth. We are seeing more money being dumped into telehealth. We're here to help support it in, in any shape or form that it's coming in and make sure that we're prepared to tackle that. Excellent. And with that, we're going to have to uh, close um, and get ready for our next guest. Um, thank you very much, JJ, for um, your information and your insights and so forth. And I was very, you know, pleased to know what you what's going on in the telehealth world uh, as it affects broadband people. Um, so mm-hmm. again, thank you for your time. No problem, Craig, and I appreciate the the opportunity to be on your uh, your show. All righty, take care. All right, thank you, sir. All righty. Our next guest is Diane Carney, uh, Connery, who is the director of the Pottsboro Public Library. And I met her uh, several months ago, uh, right before she launched uh, probably one of the first telehealth uh, centers in a library in the U.S. And so, Diane, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. And yes, we just keep bumping into each other. <laughs> we are definitely on the same circuit. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> but it's good. It's a good thing because there's just so much that's happening. And let's just roll right into it. Um, you know, what's, well, actually, let's talk a little bit about your telehealth project. Um, because again, you know, that's how we met and, but you've been doing a lot of other stuff as well, but where is, where are you with this, uh, telehealth center? Okay. We started, well, and first of all, I am in a rural library. I'm in Pottsboro, about an hour and a half north of Dallas, small town and, um, infrastructure broadband access is, is a real issue in our area. And so through a National Library of Medicine grant um, for about $20,000, when COVID started, we were able to convert one of our, it it was a storage room and it was a mess and not really used. Um, (laughs) We were able to convert that into a dedicated telehealth um, space. And it so happened it had an outdoor entrance, which was perfect. And um, so people can come in to our little rural library and connect with their health care providers. Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to the, um, the telehealth center, but I want to talk about a couple of your projects that were um, health-related. Because I found it very interesting what you're, what you have done, and that has led up to telehealth. So um, when we're talking about you know your different uh, health-related projects, why don't you talk a little bit about each one, starting maybe with a little bit about like how did you determine the need for those those particular projects? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing, um, being in a library, we see the needs up close and personal. And I think particularly probably a rural library, we really get to know the people who are coming into our library. So several years ago, we had a, a family who would come in here um, after school every day and um what we learned that the family had no transportation and there's no um, public bus system or anything in our system and ride share is not even a thing. And so Mm -hmm. what we discovered with her five and seven-year-old son um, is that the only place she had to grocery shop was the dollar store, which meant all processed foods, no fresh produce. And so she would the the school bus would drop the kids off here she would bring a snack for the kids after school and that snack was um a bag of marshmallows and so yeah. that began sort of our um our health focus and 
maybe one of the first steps we took was um, in a city park um, a couple blocks from the library, we started a community garden that had 100 individual beds so people could, um, and we provided everything, the water, the tools, the know-how, the seeds, and um, people could plant their own organic produce. And um, it was very close by the housing authority, so, so low-income housing in our community. And then we were able to start a library of things and um, just to check out non-traditional items, things like canning supplies. And we would offer um, cooking classes and canning classes and a dehydrator. But then we also provided cargo bicycles. So those people who did not have transportation could ride a car to cargo bicycle to the nearest grocery store and um, buy groceries there. And so from that, it developed in, well, what you may think of as more traditional library services are people who come in to use our computers. And many times in our area, they don't have the skills needed um, to do what they want to do on the computer. So we had a uh, an older woman come in, her son, was in the Navy and medically discharged. He had developed leukemia, and he had moved back in with her. And um, this woman was trying to navigate all his health care needs and insurance and doctor's appointments and all of that um, at the library. And she wasn't tech savvy. So we were able to support her in that process um, and help her, you know, and as a side to that is we're just a friendly face um, that she would literally cry on our shoulders um, and, and thank us for our support. So we did that. Then a lot of people just coming in needing to connect with healthcare providers but not having the means at home. And then when COVID started, we stayed open because internet access is so difficult, yet so essential. And um, so we were seeing people needed a private space to have these online appointments. And that's when we came in with the, the private space with our, our telehealth room that um, in some cases people don't have the hardware at home. In some cases they don't have the connectivity. Um, they may not have the skills they need to make the connection and that confidence. And um, even if they have all of those things, in a little bitty house, somebody may not have a private room to have that kind of conversation that they want to have with a healthcare mm -hmm. provider. So we provide all of that to privacy as well. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. You know, there was... Um... I've been in so many meetings lately, but I, one, one of the questions that came up uh, from somewhere was, um, you know, what do you do from a policy standpoint when you're trying to deal with people, uh, they don't have space in their home? So we're, you know, we're on the horse and we're trying to get people uh, motivated to uh, adopt telehealth and sometimes I think we are we are situations there are situations where um, you know even if you had the computer you don't have the space or you don't have the privacy I mean who, who can solve that problem do you think or maybe there's no one to solve it but it is a need I think um, what do you think? Well, yeah, and and one of the things is every library, every community is different from every other one. But, for instance, mm -hmm. in our library, we were basically one big room. The only private space, well, the bathroom, but the only other private space in, in our building was my office until mm -hmm. we were able to carve out this space. But a lot of libraries 
have study rooms um, and other little private areas. Uh, and I do know some libraries are um, investing in, it's almost like a little telephone booth, a, a, a kind of a kiosk that's soundproof that um, uh, if, yes, if they have the, yeah, so that, that just seems like a great solution. Libraries tend to be very um, innovative. So um, until we start reaching out to people in in their homes, I think um, libraries will just find a way to, to make it work in their space. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Now, with all of these projects leading up to the uh, telehealth uh, center, did you have a specific goal? Like, for for example, were all of these? You had the cargo bus uh, bikes. You had the the um, uh, the plots for individual farming and and so forth. Um, were they all part of a grand scheme? Uh, were they in response to you know individual uh, instances where it made sense to you know respond in the way that you did? How did that sort of come together? Well, I wish I could say it was a well thought out <laughs> scheme, but I would not be telling the truth. I think um, <laughs> it, it, it's part of a double-edged sword. Um, we have flexibility here to respond to needs. And so, um, it, and it's such a pleasure. Frequently, we think we're starting out one road and then we get going in that direction and something else reveals itself to be a need. And so we're really able to be responsive when when these needs reveal themselves. And luckily, we don't have all the levels of bureaucracy that a lot of larger organizations um, do. And mm -hmm. we're every, everything's a beta test for us. So... Um, if we see a need, we do um, pursue it to the best of our ability. And also during this time, I happen to be um, working on a degree in library information science, and I was taking a consumer health information class, and I was amazed to see the statistics about health outcomes in rural areas. There is a lot of evidence that suggests that health outcomes in rural areas are not as good as they are in more populated areas for a variety of reasons. There are healthcare provider shortages, there are transportation barriers, um, just the distance. Sometimes people don't want to go to a healthcare provider because it takes so long to get to them. And um, so all of that just went together to paint this picture that, that it made sense for our community. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, this, uh, this need for adaptability, is this a current theme among a lot of the libraries, you think? Yes, yes. Um, in fact, there are symposium going on right now about um, it's the new librarianship. It's um, what did what can we learn from COVID? Um, our library has not been a traditional library in about 11 years now. But for those libraries who have been fairly traditional, um, there is a lot to be learned from community needs and things that have been revealed during COVID. And, you know, we all saw on the nightly news every night the, the problems with connectivity, um, kids not being able to do their schoolwork, and then, you know, telehealth became um, such, such an issue. And so I, I, I think that libraries are um, positioning themselves to serve more essential needs in their communities. And I know that's a, that's a requirement in our area because if you're in a small town, um, there's not a lot of funding to go around. And so we as a library are competing with essential services like 
you know, water and sewer and trash pickup and firemen. And so it's um, a strategic imperative for us that we're providing essential services to the community. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the first stories that you and I talked about was the relationship with your uh, uh, wireless ISP, uh, TechWave. Um, how important is the, the partnership for all of these various, because you guys have four or five different digital projects going on, and then you have the whole adoption that you, where you're you know, putting equipment on uh, water towers and what have you. I mean, there's a lot of uh, adventurous stuff that you're doing. How important is that partnership um, to, to getting done, get, getting stuff done? On a, a scale of one to ten, it's it's a twenty, and and I have been so fortunate to um, connect with with JJ. We actually connected years ago through a. A fundraiser for our volunteer fire department held in a horse arena, but th- this is the kind of yeah, <laughs> <boots> <laughs> can fall. Um, it, it's the um, the nature of relationships that can be built, and our capacity, the library, um, is very small. We're underfunded and understaffed, yet we see the needs. Through partners like um, JJ with TechWave, with our WISP, we build our capacity to serve the needs. And it's a win-win because he's got the knowledge, um, but he doesn't have the interface with the public the same way that we do. And now with federal funding, um, libraries have the opportunity to apply for some of that federal funding that um, the private businesses on their own could not do. So it's just been a great partnership. And the fact that he is local, he was born and raised here, he knows the people here, he um, cares about the community. And that just means everything. It's, you know, we're not just some return on investment for his um, spreadsheet. We, it's a community that he really cares about. Mm-hmm. I, I got you. I got you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the, I guess after our first interview, um, you and I were having a conversation and you talked about something that was very surprising for you, um, which was uh, it took a while to get people to engage even though you've built the, the text of uh, the uh, telehealth center in response to people's um, needs whatever happened that that was a, that seemed to be like a, a sort of a we were stumped moment <laughs> yes I didn't know you were going to tell that story Craig um, <laughs> but yes <laughs> Sometimes we we don't like to share our failures, but it is it's important. Um, that is one of the cases that we knew the need was there. We provided this incredible space, and um, it was pretty quiet. <laughs> and so um, some of the things I have learned along the way are um, when you think about it. Number one, most of the people we're trying to reach in our community are people who are not connected. So many of the ways that we typically use as a library to get the word out to the community um, don't work. You know, we're not sending them the email newsletter. Um, Some of them are not Facebook users, so if we post it on social media, they're not seeing um, that. And then as we talked to people, it became obvious, duh, that like a lot of people, don't want to go see a doctor. They don't want to get bad news or whatever the case may be. So first of all, there's that reluctance to see a healthcare provider. Now add on top of that people who aren't comfortable using technology. And so, you know, that that's another whole layer. Even though we are, you know, a friendly face 
here at the library, they may not know us if they haven't been here before. So you've got those things going to you. And then even not too long ago, I was talking with a 78-year-old woman who came to use this space. And what she pointed out to me is that our promotional flyers that we were posting everywhere, the pharmacy, the post office, um, all around town, that the um, image on our flyer is an open laptop keyboard and two hands on the keyboard. Yet we have some other promotional materials that show the smiling face of the actual healthcare providers they will be talking with. And she talked about how much more appealing those images were to her um, when she was insecure about using a laptop, the picture of the keyboard was uh, intimidating for her. Yeah, I gotcha. Interesting. I would say that um, definitely not to look at, you know, those first couple of weeks as any kind of uh, a failure. I think it was, um, it, it would be helpful for a lot of the libraries to understand um, that it's just not going to be here's you know here's this telehealth center we're going to open the doors and a thousand people are going to show up because that expectation will become a almost a demoralizing uh, effort and so it is actually good that people know that you've got to uh, build up a clientele using the telehealth center um, in order to to have those, you know, thousand people coming into their, you know, into your office every couple of months. Mm-hmm. And now wow. we are take, taking the next step in that um, with with one of our healthcare partners. They have funding to train and this was a new term to me, community health workers, but that is, it's a national program. They receive 160 hours of training, and it's people in the community who are embedded in the community, so they can be going out to meetings, let's say, at the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or church groups, um, and helping people connect with the resources they need, and um, one of those resources will be explaining to them about the telehealth um, room that we have available and how that works. Oh, coolness. So mm-hmm. there's money for these ideas, which is good because, you know, sometimes it gets a little uh, crazy trying to figure out how these things are going to be afforded. Now, um, you have done a lot of grant writing, and you have been successful at this. Um, do you have a, I don't know, a trick or a, something that you do that uh, ensures your uh, success rate? But but how do you manage to do this on a regular basis? Well, the I mean the, the easiest answer or the the easiest thing to know about it is just really answering the questions on a grant. But also, Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the things that we have done successfully is tell the stories because um, in any kind of communication, you start talking about statistics and, you know, all the the numbers, and um, that is easy to skim over until you hear you know, the story of the woman, and I'm actually looking out at her apartment now. I can see the the apartment from where I'm sitting, that when we had the freeze in February, there uh, we went door-to-door with water, well water for people. And one of the doors we knocked on, a woman answered who was probably in her 60s and had this big, jagged um surgical incision down her chest and in talking to her she had recently gotten home from having 
open heart surgery and here she was without electricity and without water for for oh, almost wow. a week yes <laughs> and and so yes our services are needed and and people want to help so i think um when we can tell those stories in a way that um, people can um, have the picture of what's going on in our community that they want to help. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the areas that's become very popular in terms of what is being funded related to broadband is a lot of these digital projects, training, uh, uh, digital literacy, um, you know, a whole number of digital things, including obviously telehealth. Is there, you know, we got like a couple of minutes here. Is there some words that you would pass on to folks on terms of how do you do or how do you manage um, digital projects? Because this may not be a, you know, a thing for some libraries. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, probably an hour ago, we did receive notification that the Texas State Library is awarding us $53,000 for a digi digital navigator program. Whoa. And um Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> in that case, one of the things libraries do so well is share information and best practices. Um, with one another and Salt Lake City did an incredible pilot program on digital navigators uh, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance has the toolkit on their site and it even has specifically down to things like you're hiring a digital navigator here's the job description so wow. it is uh, yeah rather than us all going out and just you know, blank canvas and having to do all that groundwork. So much of the work has already been done um, when we reach out to other libraries. And then, you know, in, in these situations too, I, I've learned so much from going beyond the library field to the, the technology kind of groups and nonprofits. And I think by just to bring it full circle to talk about the partnership with our WISP, if we can work together on these projects, we're going to make so much more progress than any of us doing it alone. And that's a good, yeah, that's a good uh, point. Um, we got two minutes. So in one of those two minutes, what would be the one advice you would rec or give to other libraries on how they can maximize the benefit of a company such as TechWave? Mm -hmm. um, I would say say yes to things. <laughs> um, and uh, it's e e easy for libraries to really get caught up in policies and procedures and bylaws and all of that. And um, these times um, and these changes require us to um, broaden our ways of thinking about things and trying new things. So um, I, I think just being able to see how we can support one another, that's one thing uh, my WISP and I have been able to do is, you know, on, on grants and all kinds of, of articles and um, advocacy is um, speaking up for one another. I think that carries a lot of, of weight when people outside your field can um, vouch for you and that's meaningful. So I just, I'm a big believer in saying yes to things and beta testing and kind of what you were saying with the, the early days of the telehealth. There really is no failure in this. It's just what do I need to learn? And, you know, let, let's keep it moving. Excellent. And with that, we will wrap up this show and this week. And I want to thank you, uh, Diane. Uh, and I, you know, I wish you continued success with all the craziness that you've got going on. But it's, <laughs> it, it's been a great, it's been great watching you. So 
again, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Craig. Great. And to our audience, thank you again for checking in. Uh, We'll be back next week with another good show. Everybody have a great weekend and uh, stay safe. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.